Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's get it right now to Lisa Erickson. She's a senior VP and head of traditional investment at U.S. Bank Wealth Management. Lisa, um, we've been talking. I mean, there's so much pessimism, right, in, in markets. We were talking about J.P. Morgan um, coming out and saying clients are under extreme stress. We've seen insane volatility. And obviously, for the everyday person, you've got inflation Um as Greg just noted, uh, $5 and I think 44 cents around San Francisco to fill up. Um, at the same time, Matt Winkler, our editor in chief emeritus wrote uh, a piece, um, pointing out that CEOs are extremely optimistic. They want to spend a lot of money. They want to hire a ton more people. Um, how do you see the markets right now? Well, to your point, Matt, we really do have more of a balanced outlook right now on the market. And the reason is really very similar to the uh, factors that you outlined. While certainly uh, there's a lot of concerning events, including the human tragedy that we have with the Ukraine and Russia of invasion. Uh, if you look under the hood at the basic fundamentals in the U.S. economy, it actually is robust. And so on a macro basis, if we look at our global dashboard of indicators, we see that, especially in the U.S., we're on solid growth ground, coming off very high levels. And in addition, uh, generally activity around the world while under some threat from what's going on in the vacation uh, from the invasion is still uh, managing to stay in growth territory. And to your point, corporate indicators also are robust. We just came out of a very nice fourth quarter earnings receipts. And revisions continue to go up for the full year 2022. So when we balance some of the risk going on with changes in Fed monetary policy as well as uh, the geopolitical situation, that counterbalances what we see on the fundamental front and therefore really more of a balanced outlook. Lisa, you know, what do we think about the Fed meeting next week and what it might do in terms of changing course in the way CEOs and investors see things? Yeah, to your point, really, Fed monetary policy is one of the key items that we're keeping an eye on. And really, again, on the risk ledger, one of the, the key items, simply because we're moving from a several-year period of more accommodative policy to one to where the Fed wants to normalize. Now, Chairman Powell did just recently state that you know he's going to be recommend, recommending a 25 basis point increase in interest rates at that March meeting. And so that took a little bit of fear out of the markets because there had been some concern for up to a 50 basis point increase. But really how that continues to navigate through the year is going to be critical only because uh, the Fed's really in a tight spot with trying to maintain growth and yet grapple with some of the elevated inflation that we've had. What's the key here, Lisa, when you come into the office every day and uh, open up your Bloomberg, what, what's on your dashboard? What are you looking at? Is it all about commodities prices the last couple of days? Well, to your point, it really is both about what's going on with uh, monetary policy as well as uh, with commodities. And we certainly had a period where we start started to see some uh uh, subsiding in both the general rate of inflation as well as what was happening with commodities. But again, with recent geopolitical events, uh, we're seeing those uh, st 
strong spikes up, especially in the price of energy, but also in other areas like grains and metals. And so that obviously is really a key risk to the outlook. All right, Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Great having you on. I feel like I feel like checking in with uh, Angie Gildea right now. She is a national security, national sector leader, I should say, uh, energy, natural resources and chemicals joining us from KPMG. And it's a great time to have you on, Angie, because um, the moves that we're seeing, just the uncertainty here. I mean, I honestly don't know if anyone wants to answer questions in this kind of market. How difficult is it? (laughs) It's, it's a lot of uncertainty out there, and really it's anyone's guess in terms of what's, what will happen next. You know, it's interesting because it's also Sarah Week right now where there's a lot of energy executives meeting down um, in Texas, right? Uh, you have Vicki Holub saying that there are real risks out there. I mean, what, what are oil executives worried about right now? You know, I have in the 25 years in, in my career in energy, I don't know that I've seen quite anything like this. So there's a significant number of risks. I think the first uh, risk that we all have to grapple with is the the risk around energy security. That number That's number one for all of us, making sure we have got uh, the energy sources when we need it. Now, there's enough. The good news, the silver lining, if there is a silver lining of all of this, is there is enough oil and gas out there to uh, to meet the world's demand. We just have to get it to the right to the right places and through the right the right markets. And we've been undersupplied for uh, for a while now due to the lack of investment in the sector. And, and that's on top of some of the challenges we're seeing right now. Is there anything that this administration can do to get that investment flowing again? Have they done it already? You know, are the uh, wildcatters out there looking for more oil? Um, Are they fracking to get us gas rather than shipping it in via, uh, you know, freighter from uh, LNG from Russia? What do you see happening in, in that regard? Well, I think the good news is we have seen rig counts increase. Uh, we have seen drilling increase in the U.S., but these things take time. It's not something that you can necessarily turn on a spigot like you do with your with your water, and the and the uh, supply is immediately there. And so it's going to take a while um, to get you know to get supply back into the market. And really, the big question uh, out there is: Will OPEC step up and release? additional capacity to the market. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the relationship between U.S. oil companies and OPEC here, because you have, I, I want to go back to those, Vicki Holub, the Occidental CEO comments. What she says is a dire situation that world energy markets can't rely on major growth in the Permian Basin. And so how do we think about, you know, the relationship between the U.S. and OPEC? Well, I think that's something that we've always grappled with um, to some extent. Uh, the challenge has been over the last few years, capital capital spending, cap, CapEx, has been cut. Uh, and so you aren't seeing these major capital projects come online like we have in, for instance, 2008, 2009, when we saw 
um, significant challenges from a price standpoint. So we haven't seen the major investment from a major capital project from the international companies to the extent we saw before. And so I think that's something that, particularly as we go uh, through the energy transition, that's something that we're going to have to keep in mind. There is a mix as we get to net zero, and we've got to plan uh, and invest accordingly. All right, Angie, thanks so much for joining us. Great to get your take. And um, I'd love to, we don't have time today, but I'd love to talk a little about your charity work as well. Everybody we talk to in Texas is really philanthropic and working hard for children and for uh, the homeless in, in terms of charity. And I think it's pretty fantastic um, and should be lauded. So Angie Gilday there, she is National Sector Leader, Energy, Natural Resources, and Chemicals for KPMG. It is International Women's Day. Now, I know you and I were talking about yesterday how um, it kind of annoys you that we have a Women's History Month because every month should be Women's History Month. I always say I want half the year. I do think it's awesome, though, that there's an International Women's Day. And in some places, I used to live in Berlin, they actually give you the day off, which uh, I think it's a great way to recognize. Marianne Iskandarian joins us right now. She's the CEO and president of Women's World Banking um, and has a lot of experience on Wall Street, comes out of uh, Georgetown and Yale, um, so doing incredibly well. Mary Ellen, what what are your thoughts on International Women's Day as we try and kind of separate ourselves from um, the war and what's going on? I guess we can come back to that in a second, but just in terms of working on Wall Street as a woman, um, how has it changed? Oh my goodness! Um, well, it's great to be great to be with you, and um, I feel much the same way. At Women's World Banking, every day is uh, International Women's Day. Um, I think the the big thing that's changed, and certainly um, COVID has been a, a, a big accelerator of that, is that we're finally throwing a light on some of the inequalities that have always existed. That you know, women have always borne more of the unpaid care responsibilities at home, juggling you know family jobs educating the kids has just been thrown into really stark relief these these last two years and now we're seeing women going back into the into the workforce at a slower pace than men their unemployment rates were higher um than men so on the one hand not a whole lot has changed on the other hand at least we're talking about it there's a light being shown on these issues now you've come out with a book on this that there's nothing micro about a billion women I'm wondering if you could talk a little about the challenges and really the opportunities to be extending more credit to women who have found it so difficult to get a loan to start a business. I'm so, so glad you asked that. But, you know, actually part of the, the you know, double entendre, if you will, of the title is that it's, it's not just about microloans. It's not just about very small loans. It's about really making sure that all women – and there are over a billion women around the world who have no access to financial um, products and services at all, making sure that they have access to all of them. We could be adding $50 billion annually to retail banking revenues if women were banked at the same degree of men. You could have another $50 billion in annual insurance premiums, life insurance premiums alone, if insurance companies um, – 
insured women at the same rate. You'd have $2 trillion additional um, savings deposits made. I mean, you can you can fund a whole lot of infrastructure, a whole so, lot of things um, if you were banking women at the same rates that you're banking. One thing I wonder a lot about, and humor me here, on one hand, <laughs> this idea that blockchain and cryptocurrency and digital payments could expand access to financial services for people around the world, underserved communities around the world. On one hand, that's an amazing idea. <laughs> on the other hand, you see the industry still really lacking diversity in a big way. I'm wondering if you think about the way the financial system is evolving, whether it's meeting that opportunity that you're talking about. I love that you're bringing you're, you're bridging the idea of the people who run the businesses and the people who are served by the businesses being you know, somewhat at odds here. Let me just first say, leaving aside crypto for a moment, digital financial services has been a, a revolutionary game change for providing sort of last mile financial services to people who never had access to finance before, mainly because you've finally gotten the price and the, and the cost of those very small transactions, which poor people um, do. They maybe do more transacting, but they do each individual transaction um, at a much smaller amount. It finally makes sense financially to do that. And so you've really seen um, just a, a complete uh, game change on the, the field of broader access to finance. But you're absolutely right. And, you know, and frankly, fintech, which is supposed to be so disruptive is actually worse than the mainstream of uh, of the financial sector. You you've only got something like 14% of fintechs even have one woman on their board, and we know that diversity uh, in boards, diversity in any group is going to be much better at solving complex problems than a completely um, non diverse group is. So there's only benefit to be gained by uh, bringing more yeah. more women, more people of color, mm -hmm. more diverse people around the table. You have some amazing statistics there, and it makes me wonder, you know, if it comes down to the numbers and there's this huge underserved uh, need here by the numbers, what has kept banks from serving women for so long? Oh, this is, a <laughs> that this is our life's work, really. But I think one of the big pieces that um, we're, we're always kind of uh, hammering home is, is just making sure that financial service providers have to report on a gender desegregated data basis so that we know how are women using products, how are they using services, and, and are they reporting those to their banking superintendents, to the, to the central bank? Because when they do, you can really start to shape policy, you can start to shape products. If you don't know who your client is, and how they use your product, you know, you're kind of dead and dead in the water. Uh, what we do see, in addition to that, though, unfortunately, is is we've seen in uh, Latin America, for example, there was a survey done. Um, 110 banks who actually did report to their banking superintendent mm. on uh, gender desegregated data basis. Only four of them, four banks, use that data then in making decisions. So I think it's both a question of collecting it and then using it to drive decisions. I wanted to save a couple of minutes, Mary Ellen, just to ask you about the women um, of Ukraine who are, you know, uh, uh, currently maybe a million streaming, uh, women alone, streaming across borders as refugees. We saw, of course, a huge refugee crisis out of 
Syria um, into Europe uh, about six, seven years ago. And um, these women are not just underbanked, but in, under incredible stress, especially since uh, oftentimes everything is left to them in terms of uh, organization and figuring out how the family is going to function. What can be done? Well, I'm just so glad you, you've highlighted this, and I, I really resonated with what you were saying with your experience in Berlin. I lived in Russia for a short time 25 years ago, and it was the first time I even knew there was such a thing as International Women's Day. They hand you flowers on the street. You get on the metro, and people are handing you flowers. I mean, it's really it's a big deal, and it's a lot of fun. Um, and it's just such a sharp contrast, as you say, to the, the women who are being separated from their families, driven from their homes and, and in, into refugee camps. I mean, where I'm heartened in some way um, in comparison to the Syrian refugees, we saw where, where women were, were forced out of their homes in the Syrian crisis. You know, they, they weren't banked. They didn't necessarily have cell phones. They didn't actually have digital access to their their financial services. At least these women from Ukraine have access to the technology, and hopefully their you know their banks will be able to follow them over over the border. But it's a developing crisis. We've seen some um, some real uh, interest in the researchers who track on and underbanked women in looking at this refugee crisis. This is going to be an almost exclusively female refugee crisis and one of people who have access to the technology that we're so hopeful will be able to help them as they go into this next very sad chapter of their lives. All right. Uh, Mary Ellen, great talking to you. And we should do it more often than on International Women's Day, obviously. So I hope we can get you back um, very soon. Mary Ellen Iskandarian, their CEO and president of Women's World Banking. I want to get over to Gerilyn Ritter, um, head of external affairs and ESG at Organon. And first off, say that Paul would be so disappointed uh, to be out today because Gerilyn is a Duke alum, um, kind of a big deal for Paul. But Gerilyn, you also um, studied law at Stanford and international economics at Johns Hopkins. It's, I think, a great time to have uh, uh, you on, especially with your experience at, at Merck and, and now at Organon. Um, is it difficult to navigate ESG at a time when, you know, our values are changing. I was just watching President Biden defend his administration's bona fides when it comes to uh, allowing oil producers to drill. Um, you know, less than a year ago, Democrats on Capitol Hill were ripping apart banks for funding oil producers um, to drill. So it's like it was bad then, but it's good now. Thanks for the question. I'm delighted to be here to provide Organon's perspective, uh, especially on International Women's Day. We are a women's health company. Our vision is to make a better and healthier every day for every woman. And ESG is absolutely, as you noted, an evolving area, and it can be tricky. For our company, however, our whole purpose is to improve women's health and advance gender equity. Yeah. So we really see no conflict at all between our business objectives 
and what is good for society and our many stakeholders. You no, know? for sure, for sure. You, you can call it ESG, but but frankly, it's it's just good long-term business planning. I yeah, I mean, and, and I wasn't questioning your policy at Organon. I just thought since you had have so much experience in business. Um, since you have studied this at Johns Hopkins, and I'm sure you dipped into it at Stanford and Duke as well, I could get your take on what's going on today as President Biden steps out and um, bans oil from Russia. And it's not just on the oil side. It's interesting if you look at it, uh, you know, the changing um, values in ESG, we would have banned, for example, and maybe people still don't want to invest in weapons producers. But on the other hand, you do want the Ukrainians to be able to defend themselves. So I was hoping to ask you, aside from your role at Organon, of course, I want to get back to that in International Women's Day, you know, what you think about um, the, the environment right now. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. And it is different for every single company. And the circumstances are changing so quickly and so dramatically. It's really a reason why companies need to, regardless of your sector, be in really close touch with all of your stakeholders. I think that's critical for the long-term sustainability of companies. And, you know, as the political environment evolves, as, you know, stakeholder and investor perceptions evolve and expectations change, companies just have to keep up. You can't rely on what was good enough five years ago. Yes. You know, it's interesting. I'm wondering, for a company that focuses on women's health, uh, later on today on Bloomberg Television, we also have Dina Shaker on, who works at Lux Capital. She is a investor in women's health in the venture capital world. You look at Organon, and the stock is up more than 20% at a time when the S&P is down. I'm wondering about the investor interest here to invest in women and invest in women's health and the products around serving women. That's a great question. You know, Organon was born precisely because of the tremendous unmet needs in women's health. And we've been working very hard to educate uh, investors, policymakers, all sorts of stakeholders about those unmet needs, about the disparities that are often overlooked, frankly, in women's health for far too long. And so that is our mission, and it's a great space to be in. We strive to be the leader in women's health. We have the strength to do it. We've got great products and uh, we are very actively looking to grow our pipeline precisely to meet those unmet needs that are out there. Do you think, do you think by the way, that the pandemic um, pulled back the curtain, showed us the brutal truth of some of the inequalities? Because I think a lot of us have been feeling so good about how much progress we'd made in terms of um, gender equity. But you look at what happened during the pandemic and women were um, – hurt on an, in an outsized way. And um, the problems that I think we haven't solved were really exposed. Does that help us to move forward and do better? You know, I'm not sure that the pandemic, it did pull back the curtain, but it actually made it much worse. It didn't just reveal those inequities, it made them worse. You know, I've seen estimates that 5 million women have left the workforce in the U.S. alone just over the last couple of years. 
Some studies show it's going to take women literally decades, up to three decades, to regain that process in the workforce. So the pandemic, um, unfortunately, I think it's been much worse for women than simply exposing existing inequalities. It absolutely has made them worse. All right, Gerilyn, thanks so much for joining us. Gerilyn Ritter there, Head of External Affairs and ESG at Organon. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.